Welcome to the Line Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Bob Sikora. We're here! We're here, and the Clippers just won Game 7, so congrats, Bob. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful day. Uh, Was gearing up to do a sad podcast or a happy podcast. I'm glad it's a happy podcast. For sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I was uh, I was cheering for the Clippers anyway, but I was I was watching that game, being like, "Come on, we got to record later today." <laughs> I was going to be underprepared no matter what. But I think uh, the, the dark version of underprepared is definitely less enjoyable, maybe more enjoyable for for a theoretical listener. I don't for a theoretical listener, sure, but I, you know, we care about your mental health too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if them going further is good for my mental health. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, you know, rooting for a losing team for most of my life means I got to watch many, many a playoffs. Just whatever happens is great. Let's go. My team's not even here. Um, but I have found in the less than a decade of the Clippers being a, a pretty good team that the playoffs are just stressful oh, sure. when, you're, when yeah. you're invested, you know, yeah. um, and this year feels wide open. So I think more stressful. More stressful. Um, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And they're they're not a fun team. This this specific year, they're not a fun team to root for. Yeah, they were way fun, way more fun last year, and they have nearly the same team with a few yeah. key changes. But uh, yeah, I think they're. I get a little. I get the same vibes from them and the Bucks, where it's just like, okay, I know you're really good, and I just want to see you prove something mm-hmm. in the playoffs, kind of thing. Right. And I, you know, it'd be cool to see both both of them prove something, but you know. It's not fun to be like cheering for someone, but like eye rolling if they <laughs> do the same thing. Uh, we were, we, and there were some games one through five where eye roll all over the place. Just yeah. every embarrassing thing, everything I don't like about this team, right, um, coming to fruition. So on to Utah. <laughs> <laughs> on to Utah. There we go. All right, so this week I don't have much of an intro because there's no real reason behind this theme beyond. Um, I have some stuff going on that we'll talk about later where I just had a line and a poem stuck in my head for forever. And it was a poem about sleeping or a poem that references sleeping. <laughs> Sleep is a, is fertile ground for, uh, for the medium of poetry. So I just thought, Hey, do you want to do an episode on sleeping? And uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing. Bob, how have you been sleeping lately? Ooh, um, well, I just did some traveling um, to visit my family. So I've got some like time zone switching, uh, sleeping. I, when I sleep at my parents' house now, um, my brother's room is like the main guest room. Okay. Um, so it's, I've slept there before, but it's definitely still like an uncomfortable, unfamiliar, still space. jarring kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my first time, uh, living in an apartment by myself. And there's something distinctly weird about coming back from a trip and being with family and people and then stepping back into like, oh, here's my empty, apartment oh sure yeah. <laughs> you know and it's like i and i got back in like really late like one in the morning um and just like well i guess i could go to sleep here now <laughs> it felt weird <laughs> right um i'm on a yeah i'm on a run of uh waking up at like three or four and then being like you gotta go back to sleep you, sure you know yeah uh, so not great is the answer <laughs> the long answer uh that's that's relatable i um my sleeping is like permanently broken now i've always been a uh uh, stay up late person. I don't, I very rarely go to bed before midnight, like almost never. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a 
two and a half year old. So I have to wake up at six 30 every morning. Uh, Cause we put him to bed at seven and he's up at six 30 or before pre pandemic used to be if like, if my wife could take care of him for a little bit, I could like maybe get a little bit more time sleeping. But uh, during the pandemic, I, I don't really know why. Maybe he was just grumpy one day, but we start, we started bringing him into the bed with us for a little bit and he can like, you know, we'll get him up, we'll get him dressed for the day. And then, uh, um, just take him back to bed with us so we can just like chill out for a little bit. So now, even if like, <laughs> even if I don't have anything to do that morning, I'm still up cause I'm getting like kicked in the back and like right. questions are being asked of me that, you know, <laughs> I may or may not have the answer to. And that's sort of thing. so, so I'm in bed at midnight or later up at six 30 and then just like throughout the day, <laughs> I'll I'll like grab like 10 or 15 minutes of nap time. Like when I can, like, you know, you know, I'm working and parenting all day, but like if I get like a a 10 minute window, I'm like, all right, I'm taking, taking advantage of this. (laughs) So so I'm just like permanently broken. I don't know. (laughs) And it's not going to get any better when he has to go to school. Cause then we're going to still have to get him up at six 30. Right. And then take him to school. But you know, whatever, that's fine. Someday there will be a, eight hours of sleep again. Someday. Someday, you know, we're all vaccinated. So, or, well, he's not, but he will be, you know, hopefully by whenever. the end of the year, whenever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one day I'll get a vacation and I can just like drop him off at his grandparents <laughs> and uh, <laughs> go <Well>, to sleep. <laughs> big dreams. <laughs> big dreams. Speaking of sleeping dreams. There we go. There we go. Which leads perfectly into your poem. We did it. About Transition. dreams. What a segue. Really, really nicely. I'm going to read this poem. I've been giving too much preface lately. We're just going to get into the poem. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Um, This is uh, Dream Song Number 17 by Daniel Borzitsky. They took my body to the forest. They asked me to climb a ladder. I did not want to climb a ladder, but they forced me to climb the ladder. If you don't climb the ladder, we will bury you in the foamy mud. I had to decide. Should I die by hanging or by burial? I climbed the ladder and they wrapped a belt around the thick limb of a tree. And then when I could no longer breathe, they tossed me into a stream. And I floated to the edge of the village where someone prayed for my soul. It's like this in a lullaby for the end of the world. The options for the end are endless. But this is not really a lullaby for the end of the world. It's about the beginning. What happens when we start to rot in the daylight? The way the light shines on the ants and worms and parasites mauling our bodies. It's about the swarms of dogs gnawing our skin and bones. Do you know what it's like when a ghost licks your intestines? Do you know what it's like when a rat devours your brain? To avoid the hole, the children must sing sweetly, softly. To avoid the hole, they must fill their songs with love. Yeah, this poem rules, man. I um, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the wilder poems I feel like you brought to the uh, to the show, and I I'm really into it, and I don't really know what to make of it. I didn't skim your notes right before we started, and it sort of gave me some clarity, but um. But I just kind of, yeah, like, let this poem take me on a ride. I'm going to get the cliche out of the way right up top. Yeah. It has dream logic. 
Right. <laughs> it right. just it goes from one thing to the other thing. But I feel like that's an un, uninteresting way to analyze it, although we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit because it is called Dream Song number 17. But, um, but yeah, I really dig this one. So, yeah, why this poem? Well, I'm, I'm glad you dig it. Um, I, I was thinking that as I was reading it. This, this does feel a little bit out of my normal, um, what I bring to the table. Maybe a little bit more Chris Core than Bob Core. Um, <laughs> I have been looking for a way to bring a Borzetsky poem to the pod all season. I think it was in January that I finally read um, his collection, The Performance of Being Human. It won the National Book Award. And, you know, I am totally late on this guy. It's not a secret. He is a relatively big deal poet, um, you know. And since, the, you know, I read that collection, what, five years after it came out, he's released two in the meantime. Um, most re- recently, it's called, one is called Written After a Massacre in the year 2018, um, which is, like, pretty directly um, responding to the Tree of Life synagogue shooting um, in Pittsburgh. But it's also, I think, kind of building on his poetic project, um, which is really built in critique. Um, I think it's a little bit short to say, like, critiquing capitalism. Um, I think both he gets more specific than that and um, also probably has a, could say, really smart, more nuanced things about um, his work. Again, part of the reason that I'm excited about him right now and wanted to bring him up um, was I saw a reading. Um, I think it was for um, Pilsen Community Books hosted it. When when his most recent collection came out, um, and he was just fantastic. It was a great reading. He's a really likable dude. Um, he seems incredibly, incredibly smart. And I have a, a a special, special soft spot in that one. He's a, he's another Chicago guy. He I think currently teaches at um, UIC. I might have that wrong, but he used to teach at the city colleges. Um, and I am a community college guy. I briefly taught Chicago city colleges. Um, and I just had this incredible moment where I was there, um, where they were introducing me to another class that I was supposed to teach, didn't end up working, um, that had been like developed through the city colleges. Um, and they had like made, textbook is not a great word, but they had, you know, this, this book of like readings and ways of thinking about the class. And I'm like, I'm like looking at this thing and I'm like, this is such an awesome resource. I'm totally excited about it. And then I get to the back page and he's like one of the three people who put it together. Um, that sounds really rad, actually. That's really cool. <laughs> it just, it just like clearly like this really badass guy, you know. Yeah, uh, so I'm embarrassed I'm to say I didn't know who he was before you sent this over. Um, there's too many I'm poets. terrible at finding new poets, and and there's too yeah, many. There are too many poets. <laughs> and you know, and I and I do. I think genuinely, you know, you can win a big award, and it might not hit beyond academic world poetry, you know. Yeah. Whenever those awards are announced, I'm like, oh, I should, I, you know, I'll see the announcement or whatever, and I'll be like, mm-hmm. I should check, I should check these people out, and then I get around to like maybe a fourth of them, you know, right? For sure, um, for for, sure. for all genres, for poetry, fiction, and and nonfiction and stuff, you know. So yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm so bad at like, I we were talking last week about lists. I should just start making more lists. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's actually that's how I got to him. Is is uh, the library down here? Um, has a really cool system of like saving books for later. And so I'm just like kind of constantly reserving something from that list and adding to that list. Nice. I like um, that. Yeah. And that's how I got to his. That uh, chapbook reading you were talking about, is that on YouTube or anywhere? Or it on might, the publisher's it, website, maybe? It, I don't know about, because it was through Pilsen Community Books. It might, they might have filmed okay. it. I'm not sure. Sure. Okay. Um, but to connect us back to sleep. Yeah. Um, obviously it, it's a dream song, and, and I kind of appreciate 
that you know, like you can't call something dream song number something without it being, I guess, in conversation or referential to John Berryman. But I was kind of excited to find, uh, you know, to not have to have the Berryman conversation because the poems are great. He's problematic. Um, right. You know? right. But like this poem is like maybe written in that spirit, but it's like, we're not even, that, that's not a path we're going to go down in this yeah. conversation. And it's, it's good enough to where we, we don't can just to. spend endless time talking about this poem and just not even go down that road if we don't want to. Right. Um, it's, it's a really cool poem and it's really cool because it does a lot of really cool things. But to you, what's the move? What's the cool thing that it does? What's the move? Well, I mean, I guess kind of thinking about that mode of, you know, you gave me the, you tossed out the sleep topic. And I, I was like, this, this should be easy. There are plenty of poems about <laughs> sleep. There are plenty of poems about dream or like, I don't know, where sleep is like the, the sets, gets the ball rolling or the action in the poem comes from Maybe that's not true. As I say it, I'm totally questioning myself. <laughs> well, uh, Tony Toast has that book, um, Complex Sleep. Uh, right mm-hmm. next to me, what I read from last week is uh, Matthew Roar's They All Seem to Sleep. There's a lot of sleeping okay. in poetry. Okay. When we're not looking at the moon, we're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was trying to find sleep songs, dream songs. And as I said, I or dream sleep poems, dream poems. I was thinking of him. This poem popped up. And, and it's kind of funny. This is not like the first poem from that collection that I would have reached for. Mm-hmm. Most of them are longer. Sure. <laughs> um, and I don't think quite operate the same way. And I'm, I'm going to come up short and try to maybe explain it. Um, but thinking of this poem as this dream song and a poem that's like written in the instinct of like, I had a dream, like, I, I you know, whether this is not actually a dream he had, um, you know, it kind of feels like this, the, the fertile starting ground, for what this poem comes out of. Sure. Um, like you said, there's, there's dream logic here. There's no question. And it feels like it reads um, like he's dreaming. All the text is in italics, which I think kind of gives that vibe too. Um, yeah, that makes it feel like it's set somewhere else outside of yeah. like a conscious mind kind of thing. There is there's a an elsewhereness. Um, a, I'm looking for a sci-fi term, but I don't have it um, to this. And what I'm getting at here, as someone who certainly has tried to write their dreams, I think it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do and make good. <laughs> right? I have a short story that I wrote based on a dream, and I still really like it. But um, by, like, the third draft, almost everything from the dream had been cut out. Right. And I, I think part of the reason for that is um, our own personal dreams, like, probably aren't that interesting to other people. Right. Right. <laughs> You know, maybe some of the surreal aspects of it can be, but, it, you know, they are rooted in our own subconscious. Right. Their synapses firing randomly while we're unconscious, you know? <laughs> right. right. So, so the move, if it's, it's a, a broad way of thinking about it, I guess, is that I think this really works because it doesn't feel kind of, like, detached or just, like, surreal for the sake of being surreal. I've probably said that before. Like, that's something... And I, I'm sure there are surrealists or folks who are more interested in that mode who could probably defend it. But I, I think that's something that bugs me a little bit is when something just kind of feels weird for the sake of being weird. Um, I think maybe I do think there's a place for it. Yeah, I think that, that that's definitely a uh, know it when you see it type thing. But mm-hmm. I, I am similarly bugged by it. Yeah, um, I think I also probably have negative vibes about it because I do think a critique of my work has been to be weirder. Mm, sure (laughs) sure and i haven't responded well to that right um i I think i and i think there's like a good spirit to it 
um, the people that's come from, but it also feels maybe like a misunderstanding of what I'm trying to do. Sure. Um, yeah. We got to get back to the poem though. Right. So I think this, this kind of captures that way that, you know, as much as dreams are these random synapses following, um, they're kind of rooted in, I think like real anxieties um, yeah. and where it's like doing that in the poem is, you know, one just kind of starting with this just really broadness. They took my body to the forest, um, this repetition. They asked me to climb a ladder. I did not want to climb a ladder. There's this kind of like matter of factness and total broadness. We don't know where we are. We don't know who these people are. Um, you know, yeah, there's an opaqueness maybe is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. And then about halfway through, for a lack of a better word, I'm going to call it a turn. It's like this in a lullaby for the end of the world where it kind of moves from telling you the events of the dream to maybe like kind of like explicating it. Right. Right. And I almost like took that back as I like identify that as the turn because he takes it back um, to read that part again. It's like this in a lullaby for the end of the world. We have a colon. The options for the end are endless, which I do think is like, a pretty important part in the poem. Yeah. Um, I think that is like a, an anxiety that it is reflecting on, um, you know, and we talked about this last week um, with kind of apocalypse, uh, global warming worry is, yeah, I think the end could come from so many different places. Right. Um, and it's horrifying in so many ways. But right after that, those two lines, um, it's all couplets, this poem. The next couplet but this is not really a lullaby for the end of the world. We talked about that with Ross Gay, um, with a, a move I love so much, where you turn back on your own logic and you say, wait a minute, that's not it. Yeah. And then it gets into what I do think is like the moment of the poem for me. Um, and probably why I do like this so much. I think it, it got to an anxiety that I, I'm interested in. I, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. It's about the beginning What happens when we start to rot in the daylight? The way the light shines on the ants and worms and parasites mauling our bodies. And that's still fairly broad. And I'm reading it as like pretty metaphorical, like not literal ants, worms, and parasites. Um, But that idea of what happens when we start to rot in the daylight. um, Yeah. That that really hit me as kind of like the core anxiety that's going on here yeah it um i i kind of uh agree with your initial reading and disagree with the speaker uh, this is a lullaby <laughs> for the end of the world <laughs> um and those those six lines lullaby for the end of the world the options for the end are endless but this is not really a lullaby for the end of the world. that is like that does seem really key because what he starts describing after that it feels like and i'm, I'm buying your climate change reading here or, or some sort of, like, sense of doom reading. What happens, the beginning, it's about the beginning, what happens when we start to rot in the daylight. It does feel like, you know, a lot of people were talking about, like, the pandemic uh, as, like, a preview for when resources start to become scarce with right. climate change and how the wealthy are going to respond, how governments are going to respond and stuff like that. And I can't live my life with that sense of impending doom, so I just kind of, switch my brain off and don't think about those things. Um, And, uh, but yeah, you know, where does he say there are so many ways to end or whatever? Um, The options for the end are endless. 
there are lots of ways to die in this poem. You could you could mm-hmm. be hanged, you could be buried, uh, rats are gnawing on your intestines, and dogs are gnawing on your skin and bones, ghosts are licking your intestines, you know, all the stuff. And then the bringing up the children right there at the end, to avoid the hole, mm-hmm. the children must swing, must sing sweetly, softly. Uh, to avoid the hole, they must fill their lungs with love. Yeah, there's so much dread in this poem. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it really builds to it without ever like necessarily being like this is a poem about anxiety and I'm, I'm feeling anxious the speaker never has any like feelings it, it instead turns it on us with like the questions at the end i feel yeah, like yeah um, i don't know if i phrased point. that exactly perfectly but you get you get what i'm saying no um, there, there, it's um and, and and part of actually why i think this works as like quote-unquote dream logic um is that it's all just said matter-of-factly yeah Mm-hmm. You know, do you know what it's like when a ghost licks your intestines? Right. Um, and you're right, there's a question, but it doesn't even have a question mark. You're just kind of like casually asking that. Yeah, um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of how Matthew Orr would write a climate change. <laughs> like, just like bl- blanketly stating like, hey, man, you ever had a rat devour your brain? <laughs> um, I want to go back. I, as you were saying it, I think this hit me of – so it's about the beginning – what happens when we start to rot in the daylight? And that implies we were already rotting. Yeah. Either at nighttime or in our skin or behind closed doors or something, you know, which I think is, is like a big part of the anxiety in this poem. And I think, again, moving on to more of his work, I think like of, again, like his project of, of this critique that I think a lot of his work is making, you know, that large broad sweeping statements like life and like capitalism sucks right. <laughs> um, um it's, and what you know was like, the tweet the other day someone said uh it sucks living in the shadow of the fuck around century because now it's the find out century <laughs> oh that's great <laughs> i forget who said that but right. yeah but i think like that's part of of his interest um is you know shining light on some really shitty things. Like I said, so he has his most recent collection has a series of poems kind of responding to, um, you know, the, the shooting at the tree of life synagogue. Um, he writes about kind of like Lake Michigan and climate change issues. Um, he writes a lot about immigration um, and just like the absolute shit show at the border. Right. Um, you know, of how we treat people, right. You know, we treat people. And, yeah. Not, and, and, not, and I, Immigration anxiety the way Republicans have an immigration anxiety. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, yeah, that, that um, you know, our country has treated people shitty for a long time, often undercover. Right, um, right. And just because we're doing it wide open doesn't make it any less shitty. Right. It's like, it's like, you know, there's a beginning of something when we start to notice it. Yeah. It's kind of like what that series of lines is making me think and feel. Yeah, and... I don't know if I'm saying this revelation um, as well as I would like to, but yeah, um, all of that stuff to me is carried in, in, in this poem. Um, and again, it, it, it comes in the context of a collection where most of the poems are a little bit longer and I'll like a little bit more specific about that critique. Sure. But you know, this is another way of doing that work yeah. in an interesting way. And I mean, he's, yeah. And he's, to, to go really into the text, I mean, he is doing it, if we're buying the climate change reading, he is doing it with, like, a lot of, you know, pretty visceral, but again, matter-of-factly, like, not, like, 
it's really I was struck reading it about how like how much gross out imagery there is and how I didn't mm-hmm. feel like it was acting as gross out imagery. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was like, you know, there's there's foamy mud that they're going to bury him in. There are, uh, yeah, ants and worms and parasites mauling our bodies. Like mauling is a is a real choice of a word, especially since it's usually associated with like what larger animals do to you. You mm-hmm. don't get mauled by ants; you get mauled by bears. <laughs> but he's like saying ants and worms and parasites mauling our bodies, and then dogs. There's a lot of like nature imagery. There's a lot of a uh, the exact opposite of all those nature is healing memes where it's like nature is coming to kill you kind of thing. Right. Um, right. And, uh, the children are going in the hole. The children aren't going away. The children aren't disappearing. The children are going in the hole, which is a hole in the ground, you know? Um, <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's doing everything you're talking about in like a, a really specific visceral way without being like, isn't all this viscera horrifying kind of thing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I think we got to a lot of it, but uh, you want to, what's, what's going on beyond the page? Yeah. um, Those two, those two questions certainly felt very connected for me this week, (laughs) you know, and uh, I'm curious to see how we pivot from here because you had a, a very practical um, <laughs> this will be this will be a hard segue. <laughs> um, you know, reasons you wanted to talk about sleep, um, and I, I think this poem hits me right now um, in part. Um, you know, my my job at you know my semester ended all three weeks. It can't be a month now, but almost you know three or three weeks ago, let's say. I had a bicycle accident that kept me kind of yeah. out of commission for a week or two. Yeah, I don't think we talked about um, that on air, but yeah, you got, you got jacked up. I, I uh, went to visit my parents. Um, I don't know. I've, I've just had like a lot of weird downtime, um, alone time, um, and and the anxieties of the world have all of a sudden like, I don't know, kind of percolated and, and bubbled up. Um, and I am thinking about that stuff in my alone time and you know and like the best alone time to like think about scary shit is at night (laughs) trying to go to bed um you know and i'm too prone to throwing on um a a tv show or something to kind of try and and mute all of that thinking yeah Um, as i said like as someone who wakes up um sometimes go to the bathroom or whatever in the middle of the night yeah, um, yeah. Re- very regularly. The second going back to sleep um, can be pretty tough. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking about the end of the world, <laughs> I guess. But as I was trying to kind of like write on that and think about it, I guess um, that also seems, I've just been thinking about how some of these things are so big picture that it's like, easy to lose track of. I think like that phrase, the end of the world is really great um, in one sense, because it does capture the bigness, but that like when someone dies unjustly, that is the end of the world in the sense that like they don't live, the world doesn't exist for them anymore. Right. Um, for the people that love them and care about them, that can feel like the end of the world or be the end of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and even for things that aren't actual like unjust death, um, you know, people, you know, uh, what have you, medical bills, sure. being forced out of your home, you know, like all these like kind of like little, 
little, tra- I don't want to say little, but like all these tragedies that are on a smaller scale than maybe the big one um, are also huge. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. 100%. Um, right. And that I, I guess last week I was thinking about how it felt important to kind of like slow down and stick with some of the big stories. And maybe that's some of what's coming out of that slowing down um, and sticking with some of those big stories is like thinking of, God, this sounds awful to say, thinking about the human cost or the actual human consequence. Sure, yeah. Um, I think gets often forgotten um, in the way we have political dialogue, in the Twitter stuff. You know, this is like two weeks in a row where the, the poem just like hits <laughs> me and I'm like, I'm well beyond the poem. Yeah. And I'm just concerned about things. But maybe to bring us back to the poem, you already pointed us to this a little bit, is... I, I, you know, we I, we kind of talked about this. To me, this moment feels like um, inevitable. Um, yeah. This end of the world fear. Um, you know, it it feels like no matter what, it's kind of gonna happen to him. Uh, yeah, he's definitely saying he's gonna die no matter what. Right. Um, but it has this almost hopeful ending. The last four stanzas. Do you know what it's like when a ghost licks your intestines? Do you know what it's like when a rat devours your brain? To avoid the hole. The children must sing sweetly, softly. To avoid the hole, they must fill their songs with love. Yeah, it definitely puts a lot of faith in the next generation. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, And I can't tell if if it is optimistic about that or if it's thinking about the kind of like unfair responsibility to put on the next generation. Yeah. Um, Or if it's like really super bleak. And thinking that it's also inevitable the next generation is going to succumb to all of this, too. <laughs> that, to, uh, to bring up my own anxieties beyond the page, that really gets at, um, in these, these, these last four stanzas, especially the last four lines, really get at mm-hmm. um, an anxiety I have, which is like, uh, or it's also just like a pet peeve. I really hate when people are like, Gen Z is going to save us, you know, and it's like, we're not that old yet. We can like still save ourselves. Right. Um, And like, and it's also like, there's, you know, there are a lot of amazing uh, young people out there, um, you know, Greta Thunberg and, you know, just, it does seem like, yeah, Gen Z is like skewing more towards activism. And like, you'll see like those, those TikToks that go viral of like someone explaining colonialism or whatever while dancing to (laughs) Cardi B or something like that. Um, You know, those are all heartening and everything, but it's also like, you know, like Caitlin Bennett's a a gen, like the, the, the uh, Kent state gun girl is, is Gen Z too. Um, you know, uh, but you know, I was trying to remember her name at some point recently and felt really glad that I couldn't remember it. I'm so so mad that I do. Um, (laughs) But, um, uh, yeah, so I, I go back and forth between there are uh, like studies out there that are like millennials are millennials and Gen Z are more amenable to so- socialism by like a wide margin. And, right. like, um, you know, people are becoming less prejudiced or whatever uh, by a wide margin and things like that. And like, a, you know, I go back and forth between those are all really heartening. But also generationally, we have like no wealth. We have no like power. We have no. Uh, and healthcare is only getting better, so the boomers are just going to live longer. <laughs> like, and um, and I just the the thing about hope is like you just you always have to follow through on it. So it's all it's kind of mm. like the first step is the children have to sing with love, but uh, 
But boy, oh boy, those children could also grow up to the uh, to be the death squads that we see in Stanza One or whatever. Um, <laughs> bleakest reading of this poem. <laughs> <laughs> I can't Lord. decide. I can't decide which which one I <laughs> how I feel about these last couple of lines. Um, mm-hmm. Because you which know Ben probably... Shapiro is our age. Oh, God. Um, probably why the end, why the end of this poem is great is that yeah. feeling. You know, I'm glad that you agree. Um, yeah, I generally want to be positive about my reading, but uh, uh, of the last few lines, but uh-huh. yeah, um, I I couldn't help it and 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 fell into a, a deep dark sorrow. Yeah, <laughs> about the future. Um, but again, maybe that's just where I'm at. Um, I'm hoping that you can uh, lift our spirits here. With your poem, <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about tenderness, if that if that helps. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, as we established, there is no good way to get between these two poems. So let's just we're talking about sleeping. <laughs> let's just do it. So I'm going to read a poem by Eve Ewing. I read a poem by Eve Ewing in season one. I don't like to revisit writers too much on the show, just for the sake of variety. But different seasons, so it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this is um, a longer poem, so I'm not going to read the entire thing because it's three pages long with long lines. It's called Chicago is a Chorus of Barking Dogs. And because I'm not reading the whole thing, I'm going to do like a quick little structure breakdown. So it's Chicago is a Chorus of Barking Dogs. And then there's like italics, subtitle, Logan Square, night, May 30th, 2015. And then the stanzas are broken up into... A, notes on the sonic biosphere. B, notes on your parentage. C, notes on the nature of lungs, a blueprint. D, notes on 18th Street and death and green glass. E, anticlimax in defense of communion. Uh, So I'm going to read from the B and E sections, but I wanted to give that breakdown because like, uh, sort of like you were talking about with uh, Natalie's poem last week, that it, it... it almost gives it like this uh, sci-fi log type feel kind of thing mm-hmm. um, as it's describing basically a neighborhood. So I, I thought that was cool and I wanted to highlight it before I dove into the, the two sections I'm going to read. Right on. So B, notes on your parentage. Watching you breathe through the billowing, bellowing vapor that is the place we are from, I remember a name for you. My Division Street baby, a blue line baby, in a red line city, a black and white and brown baby, a cabrini green studs turkle clemente baby. You're a metal flag and a wig shot, my darling. On that merit alone, I don't mind sharing this 36 inch wide, not a bed with you, since good as you are at sleeping through the dogs and the fury, I'm that good at making it a whole night without moving an inch. And when you call out in the night, I'll call back. E, anticlimax, in defense of communion. My brother says he is trying to get you into the habit of sleeping alone, and that if you wake up, he'll attend to you. He gives me another clean blanket, and I leave you, reluctantly, for the couch. Our own dog, skinny and quiet, sleeps nearby. Upstairs, someone flushes a toilet, sending water rushing in a great invisible cascade through the wall. I wonder what it was like for people who grew up without the noise of other people. If as adults, they have to grow used to the sounds of others living and dying. Or if it comes naturally. 
like something their senses have always been waiting for. Like right now, his door is open, and yours is, and I hear you both breathing, not having a door myself. And for the first time, I realized that for the first third of my years, I never slept in a different room from this person whose lungs have worried me my whole life as if they were at my own delicate dilemma. And I think of you and the music you make in this house of jilted breath. And I open my eyes when you call for your father, my brother, and I listen when he calls back and comes for you. Girl child, you fearless winter, you gathering of pigeons before a lasting fountain. We don't want you to be afraid of the dark like we were. We want you to be able to be alone sometimes, the way we never could, and still can't really. But who can blame you, baby, in our city of glass? Can we just can we just talk about the range? Yeah. <laughs> poetry like poetry goes places. Poetry goes places, man. Um, you know, I, I get that there are you know, different genres or subgenres um, of, of fiction and nonfiction and, and et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, a poetry podcast by two dudes who, um, you know, have a, a ton of reading to do right, right. <laughs> in, the, in, their, in their own. As, as we um, established earlier, we have a ton of reading to do. <laughs> right. The, what an incredible gap between what these poems are doing, both successfully um, in very different ways. Um, yeah, as you said, the transition is hard, but I'm delighted by this. Yeah, it's great. No, it's it's wonderful. It it is a um, uh, it it does highlight the range of the medium, and um, you know we're putting them together as like a uh, just like a vague like sleep prompt. But like, if the same writer had written these two poems and put them in the same book, there could probably be other little connections enough in the same book to where this would make sense. Which is hard to see like a novel doing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can just go places with poetry. That's in, it's fun. Um, all right, hit us all in um, our uh, I don't know our, our soft gooey centers. Um, <laughs> why this poem? So uh, yeah, I uh, I couldn't get the line out of my head. I couldn't get the um, what's the line? The line is I was trying to guess as you read. <laughs> my brother says he is trying to get you in the habit of sleeping alone, and that if you wake up, he'll attend to you. Um, so I. I had that line ringing around <laughs> in my head off and on for like two years now. Um, but uh, particularly because we've reached the point where my kid can climb out of his crib. So uh, <laughs> we had to convert the crib to a big boy bed and um, we had to get uh, one of those baby monitors with a camera. So now I'm watching him sleep all the time. And so both Mallory and me and him are relearning what sleep is and learning that nap time now means at least play quietly in your room for a little while <laughs> and don't kill yourself. <laughs> so, but yeah, I've had the line, and like I said, I'd had the line rattling around in my head for two years because we started sleep training when he was, uh, this is way late. If you're listening to this podcast, don't be like me, but we started sleep training when he was seven months old. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and you know, we did like the, the cry it out method and stuff like that. So, that was an ordeal, and now it feels like we're going through another ordeal. And so I was just like, well, I don't think I've read this right. since it came out, and I haven't read any viewing in a while. So I was like, I'm just going to pick this up and, like, you know, just 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 read it, make sure I have the line right and stuff. I didn't have the line completely right in my head, but the spirit of it I did. And it, it struck me, I'll get to this a little bit more, 
in beyond the page, but it just struck me like the people who grow up without noises, like I grew up in the suburbs. So, you know, and, right. uh, my kids growing up in a much different sort of living situation. So he just has to get used to different things. And I, I wonder how that is for him, but the part of that is uh, like being in the city. I forgot how good Eve was at, uh, world building and just like world building uh. in this poem. And in parts I didn't read, uh, it shows up, but like she really just covers the Logan square that she grew up in while also like right. talking about the neighborhood of her, um, uh, I believe it's her niece, uh, her niece grew up in, is growing up in just the image to image switching the different, uh, the sort of like different settings, uh, that are in the different sections, part of which I didn't read just paints a, a picture of a community. Um, yeah, good and bad, um, good right. and bad stuff going on in this poem. And I think that's, a uh, that really, uh, I remember this one line from it and then remember that it was three pages of <laughs> world building. That was really cool. So, um, right on, right yeah. on, uh, take us, take us deeper. Yeah. Um, what's the move? That's a, I, I got ahead of myself and yeah, the scene was jumping from image to image, um, mm-hmm. to really zero in what, what really sticks out and why I chose part of this, this part of the poem to read in addition to the E part, uh, is the B section, all those pairings of, um, what should be opposites, kind of like a bunch of weird juxtapositions, um, mm-hmm. uh, beginning with my division street, baby, a blue line, baby in a red line city, a black and white and brown baby, a Cabrini green studs turkle Clemente baby. You're a metal flag and a wig shop, my darling. Just a lot of like opposites that and it's, it's obviously a lot of Chicago references, but a lot of opposites that are layered metaphors. And um, mm. you also just kind of can't live here without knowing, understanding studs turkle and Cabrini green <laughs> at the same time. Uh, you can't live here without like, getting what it means to be a blue line baby in a red line city. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a, uh, a, to be a little bit broader and more thematic, a juxtaposition of the extreme tenderness she's talking about, about caring for her niece. And then another parts of the poem, the there's a lot of violent imagery of like barking dogs and there's a stabbing at a, at a, a bar. There's a woman screaming upstairs, but it's never, it's always just like the reality of the world kind of stuff. Um mm-hmm. And then a lot of tenderness for caring for her uh, young niece. And I think it's cool, uh, cool thing to put in the same poem. <laughs> um, you, you, it, you, you've, uh, you prefaced us with that tenderness. And it, it's, it's pretty incredible. I think it, it, it hit more hearing you read it out loud. That, that kind of tenderness really is kind of this tone, mood hanging over the poem. Um, and, and like you said, it, it's honest, um, about these uglier things, um, or, you know, violence, the reality of the city, but even talks about all that with a tenderness. I think that's one of the strengths of, of her work. And it's, it's kind of unfair that she's such a good poet in addition to being like <laughs> general badass person, <laughs> um, right. you know, um, an academic scholar, a comic book writer, right. um, Cheers to Eve for for finally getting off Twitter because um, I think it's probably a good move for anyone who's you know huge and like constantly getting things. 
Um, you know, but someone who I, I feel like I learned a lot from reading her on the internet and then got to the poems and I was like, damn, these are actually really good poems. To- yeah, <laughs> seriously. You know, it, uh, it sucks because she was really good at Twitter and one of the best parts of Twitter, but also, uh, right. yeah, definitely good for her. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely good for um, her. You know, like, yeah, it's, it's really impressive to take that medium, um, and for me to walk away being like, no, I can point to specific times where I distinctly like just like learned something or thought of something in a completely new way because of your one, maybe a stream of tweets, but you know, like um, she was excellent at it. Yeah. Um, and ob- obviously, it's it's a big part of I guess both of her collections, but she's like unapologetic about the Chicagoness and like oh, I, yeah, I'm there's... gonna really talk about where I live. Yeah. And it's so funny to me that that stands out. Because I I, that, I think that's something I believe about good poetry or I don't know like a good writing mode in general that I I I try to apply, um, you know, is that the hyper specific is always going to be more effective at communicating whatever you want to communicate. You know, that right. when you move to the broad in general, that you lose something really important to the work. I, yeah, I I don't know if I'm saying this exactly how I want to, but, um, that you don't lose the universal by being really specific. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot you can get out of it. We were talking about this a little bit in the time, but Jess episodes with the, um, you can tell a good story or write good poetry while also doing like really interesting historical research. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, my favorite book is 100 years of solitude and that is extremely fictionalized, but I also feel like I can read that book and, get a history of Columbia, not the history mm-hmm. of Columbia, but a history of Columbia. And yeah, her, you, you mentioned her second book or, or both her collections. You know, this one electric arches is uh, very personal. feels like, you know, closer to like house on mango street than, than time Jess. But like, you know, it, this one's very personal, but then her second one is poems of historical research about the year 1919 in Chicago. Right. And yeah, that's a, that's a book I hope I feel confidently, enough about my Chicago knowledge to write one day. I've been Mm-mm. conceptualizing it for a long time. And every time I think about starting it, I think I need to do some more reading. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need to live in the city a little while longer. I need to go visit some neighborhoods. I need to just like get more comfortable uh, and do some more reading. But, um, but yeah, that's a, uh, it's a type of writing I'm jealous of for sure. And Definitely. like you were talking I took us out of what you're talking about, but yeah, you don't lose the specific because you can, you can read something about people's struggles and, you know, getting your kid to sleep is a universal struggle, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but she's highlighting the unique challenges of, uh, of doing it in Chicago or whatever. And, you know, yeah, you can get to all that stuff um, by drilling down to specificity, which is a cool thing about poetry. We're just going to talk about cool things that poetry does for the rest of the episode. <laughs> or every episode. Or every episode. Oh, poetry's cool once again? <laughs> um, all right. Uh, you have already touched on this a little bit, but talk about what's going on beyond the page for you. Yeah. Uh, it's talking about thinking about my kid. You know, we just had a big milestone with the uh, moving to a new bed. We also just registered him for uh, preschool. So he's starting school in the fall. It's crazy. Um, it's nuts. It's, it's crazy. Nuts. I. It's it's only a half day, and Mal's already been like, "What are you going to do with your half day?" And I'm like, "Well, I mean, <laughs> the short answer is is writing, but like, 
I don't know. I think for the first week there, I might just like go nuts. <laughs> like, just like, I don't know. <laughs> Binge watch a horror movie at eight in the morning or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've just been thinking about how different our childhoods are going to be. Talking about that line, the, mm-hmm. the sleeping line. Um, right around the time he was born, it occurred to me that he's going to grow up within walking distance of a beach, multiple playgrounds, easy train rides to two baseball stadiums and Bulls games. And all of those things were like major events to me when I was a kid. I had to drive Uh four hours to Atlanta to get to a baseball game. I didn't even get to my first NBA game until a high school band trip to New York. And even then we didn't go to the garden. It was a Nets game in East Rutherford. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then with the sleep thing, I touched on it. Like, you know, I grew up in a quiet house where the only noise that could potentially bother me was, um, a freight train off of the distance. We have a train stop like half a block away from our house. Um, our kitchen is attached to his bedroom. So we put him to sleep and we're like constantly walking around the kitchen. Um, we have a small three bedroom apartment. He's hearing all the noise. He can probably hear me right now <laughs> recording this. So yeah, so I, I feel for him on that, you know, and, and then the, uh, the, if you call out for me, I'll attend to you or whatever it was in the poem. Um, just hit hard because like like I alluded to with uh, infant sleep training, the cry it out thing, you don't attend to them for a set amount of time and then you go attend to them and stuff like that. And that's a weird adjustment as a parent or like mm-hmm. when I'm watching him on the camera, if he doesn't go to sleep and he's just kind of wandering around his room, it's like, okay, he seems fine, but like, should I go attend to him? I don't know. So yeah, this poem's hitting me in a lot of, a lot of places, but also, you know, thinking about community when he goes to school we have to be a part of the community. Um, uh-huh. Going to the playground, I'm. I have to be a part of the community. I'm. I'm not going to the playground with like other friends of mine who are parents. Uh, I'm taking him, and that means I have to talk to other parents and stuff like that. So there's just like a lot about community and um, childhood development and stuff like that that's hidden for me in this poem. So <sighs> yeah, a lot of beyond the page stuff. Um, big yeah yeah Ugh. um i'll just add a little bit quickly because you already mentioned the line but it hit me really hard reading this um that i wonder what it's what it was like for people who grew up without the noise of other people um i also grew up you know relatively suburban part of la um you know and you know, as i say that i'm like yeah we could hear our neighbors but you know i I live in an apartment now. I know exactly what she's talking about. Right. The way she's talking about hearing other people. I just like, I heard that line. I was like, Oh, I can answer that for you. And the answer is we didn't. Yeah. You know, I had to learn the other thing. Right. Um, the, you know, the and, flushing water cascading down the <laughs> invisibly through the walls and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, for the longest right. time we didn't flush our toilets while he was sleeping. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I've been there and not flushed uh, that toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Were you, you know, in a single family home in LA or yeah. And yeah. you're just close proximity to your neighbors kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. But definitely. Yeah. The, the like through the walls thing, you know, my, um, my downstairs roommate or the downstairs neighbor, um, in my apartment moved out, I think a couple months ago. It's just like, it was one of those weird things where like one day I was like, Oh, I don't hear him anymore. It really was his dog. <laughs> oh, sure. for most part. Yeah. Um, and I feel bad that I'm like not close enough with this neighbor to like know that he moved out. Um, but, you know, yeah, anywho, getting onto all of that. But also, too, reading this, um, you know, the poem taking place in Logan Square. Where you've lived before. 
I've never actually lived in Logan Square. Oh, okay, I thought you had. Were you in Bucktown at some point or something? Was it Bucktown? Okay. Yeah, Bucktown. Yeah. I guess that's pretty close. Yeah, I get those. Um, I get the boundaries mixed up. Bucktown's tiny and nothing, nothing yeah. burger of a place. Um, but uh, yeah, I think probably actually going back to Eve on Twitter, she was probably the first person um, who alerted to me to like how quickly. Uh, Logan Square is gentrified. Yeah, um, yeah, same you know, here. And, and I, I've learned it, about that from her, basically. Right, and it changed a lot between when I first moved to Chicago and now. And I like I, I don't live there anymore. <laughs> but yeah, like in my multiple times living in Chicago, it changed a lot and very quickly. So I can't imagine the dissonance um, between growing up there and you know this community that she describes, right? Um, and seeing what it is today. Um, and then also as I read that and talk about it, feel the, the, the little bit of pang of like, how have I contributed to gentrification? Sure. Um, yeah. In Chicago, you know, and what does it mean to be someone who moves somewhere and moves away and moves away, you know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Can't solve it all, but there's a lot there. Yeah. And I could go on about the neighbor thing too. Like, do you know how many units are in your apartment building right now? There's four. There's okay. There's four. Yeah. yeah so, it's, okay. Small building. Yeah. We have eight. And this is the first place I've really gotten to know any of my neighbors, uh, partially because mm-hmm. we have a, a small backyard, so we everyone hangs out on their porches a lot during the summer and things like that. But um, the first apartment I had outside of college or after college was like a an eight story, like you know, ten or twelve units on the floor, uh, right? Thing, big old thing, yeah, big thing, yeah. And uh, I heard a baby crying one time, and <laughs> a a mom I now very much relate to yelling, take Yaris, take Yaris, take Yaris at the baby. <laughs> like, what do you want? And uh I was like, Oh, I, I guess I guess my my neighbor is uh is Latinx and has a kid. Okay. <laughs> and then uh do you remember the uh the the old man who used to play saxophone under the Granville station? <laughs> Deep cut. Do you remember that guy? <laughs> know if i do this is like giant old man uh he used to just play saxophone under the granville station and one time i was walking home and i see him ahead of me on the sidewalk and he's he's a heftier dude who's been playing saxophone all day so he's like breathing really hard and walking really slow and then he turns into my building and then he gets in the elevator and he goes up to my floor <laughs> i'm like oh i have I have known about you for like six years and did not, or it wouldn't have been six years at that point, but like two or three years and right. uh, did not know that you lived basically next door to me. And I tried to strike wow. up a conversation with him. I was like, Hey man, you sound really good out there. I, I like you're playing a lot. And he did not say anything back. And I can't tell if that's either because he was just like a crotchety old man or if he was just out of breath from playing saxophone all day. <laughs> so. Oh my goodness. Yeah, knowing your neighbors, not a bad thing, but sometimes a hard thing. A, a difficult but worthy step to get past. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, well, we're going to do another hard pivot because um, <laughs> we're going back to sleep. We're going to bring it back to sleep. Um, this is a weird one, so if, if you don't have an answer for this question this week, that's Oh, get fine. ready. I'm excited about this. Oh, good, 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 good. Okay, so what's a team, and this is the NBA question, what's a team – that wasn't necessarily good, but you'd always make sure to stay up late watching. Um, this obviously won't apply to times you lived in the West Coast, but uh, I'm talking about, yeah, just a really fun team, almost like a cult classic team, but you had to you had to stay up for them. For me, it's the pre-Steph Curry, Monte Ellis, and Stephen Jackson-led Golden State Warriors. 
the latter days of Don Nelson's coaching them. Uh, they were always just dog shit, and they couldn't guard anyone, but they played at 100 miles an hour, and they'd often score like 130 points and then still lose the game. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in college around this time, so I couldn't afford or have time for league pass. But anytime they were on national TV, I was staying up late and watching that game. Um, so, yeah, what's a, uh, what's a can't-look-away team or player like that for you? So, um, I wanted to lead with, and, and you did in the question kind of address it, but, I mean, the, just the implicit East Coast bias of this question. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, was just spending a couple days in California where basketball playoffs start at 4 p.m. every day. God, that has to rule so much. <laughs> The late game starts at seven. It's incredible. It's, um, I don't uh, have to wait for anybody. That's awesome. Uh, I think I think a lot of where this comes from is uh, listening to the No Dunks guys, and they always ask Lee Lee Ellis if he stayed up late for the for right. the game, and it's like, no, I went to bed and caught it in the morning. <laughs> so so that's where that was coming from for me. But yeah, uh, I've, I've spent my life in the Central Time Zone, so. <laughs> Uh, what an incredible lifestyle where you can be like, I'm going to go to bed and re- watch this basketball game first thing. In the morning. <laughs> like over my coffee. <laughs> um, you know, so at least for I, the years that I most romanticize about this question, it, it just like doesn't really land, um, you know, because I was on the West Coast in the first 18 years of my life. Sure. Um, so this idea of, of late, staying up late for basketball games, um, is only a later phenomenon for me, uh, a more recent phenomenon for me. And it living on the East Coast in particular really sucked. Sure, uh, you sure. Know, to, to, to have a Clipper game start at 10 p.m. And you have to sit uh, through a Celtics game to get to it. <laughs> I generally did not sit through the Celtics game. <laughs> um, you know, and, and the, the easy answer here really is um, the early OO's clips. I, mean, I was wondering if that's where you're going to go. Yeah, it's 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 got to be the most easy way to go. Of, of yeah, these teams Darius where... Miles, Elton Brand, Corey Maggette, yeah, um, Lamar Odom, yeah, um, Lamar Odom. I loved Lamar Odom so much. I have talked about this before. Yeah, Lamar Odom um, rules. Shout out to Stephen and Keon Dooling. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, I would also, I guess, add to friend that. of the show, Stephen really... Furlong, not Stephen Jackson, who was not on those Clippers teams. <laughs> Who could be a friend of the show? Who could be a friend? He's um, a, a, a standing invitation. Have a podcast trade off. And we could um, smoke some weed with Steve One of us Jackson. goes on their show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will add, though, just like from that era, I was so obsessed with Vince Carter. And I watched yeah. a lot of Raptors games when I could. And they were not a good basketball team. So you, you rush uh, home I, from school early to catch a Raptors game. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and then like one last shout out to, um, the Kings just after that era, um, oh, I'll say yeah. the pre, the pre Mike Bibby, uh, Kings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jason Williams was still running the point. They got good when blah, they got blah, Mike blah. Bibby, but they got way less cool. Less cool. Less cool. Way less cool. <laughs> uh, I have Tuesday night game one between the jazz and Clippers starts at 9 PM. 9 PM. Luckily, I have nothing to do in the morning on Wednesday, so that's good. I'm up. I'm doing it, uh, and I probably the rest of this round. I guess the next two rounds will be late games for me. Yeah, assuming I care that long. Right, right. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you you will be listening to this episode on Tuesday, theoretical listener. So uh, yeah, uh, keep Bob in your thoughts and prayers on Tuesday. Bob in front of the show, Christian Ramirez. 
Um, keep the, the two Clippers fans I know. <laughs> you know half of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly half of you. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will again be pulling for the Clippers because, as LeBron James famously said, no one picks Utah. Um, I, I as, also here as the Utah Jazz's biggest supporter. <laughs> Outside of the the mean Utah Jazz people on Twitter. <laughs> Shout out to Vernon Maxwell, uh, eternal Utah Jazz troll. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. That's an episode. Um, our music is produced by Brennan Johnson. Our art is done by A.M. Strickland. And we'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>